0: a n d r e v i e w dot com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald Scotland, Wednesday, twenty fourth of November, twenty twenty one. Covid Scotland, pandemic has caused crisis of confidence in young Scots, by Judy Harrison, reporter. Half of young people in Scotland who took part in a charity survey say they have lost confidence in their work, a study has shown. The Prince's Trust, a youth charity that helps young people aged 11 to 30 to get into jobs and education, asked 2007 16 to 25 year olds in the UK about the impact of the coronavirus on their future career and job skills. The survey found that 50% of young people in Scotland who took part feel that over the course of the pandemic they have lost confidence in their ability to do the job they are trained to do, with 59% saying they have lost confidence in themselves. The research published on Wednesday also found that 46% of young Scots are concerned about how they will get their life back on track and a quarter worry they do not have the skills required for the jobs available to them. The study, however, showed 42% of participants said the pandemic has given them time to retrain and gain new skills and 56% said they feel more grateful now for the life they have. But only 16% of young people in Scotland say they feel confident in their future career, with just one-fifth agreeing that they have the confidence to go after the job they want the Prince's Trust found young people from lower income backgrounds and those who have experienced unstable employment during the pandemic are more likely to report poor mental health and a loss in their confidence. The findings also suggest across the UK, young people whose employment has been unstable and who have spent time out of work during the pandemic are more likely to report poor mental health. Similarly, 26% say the uncertain job market makes them concerned about their future, with 60% agreeing that not being able to find a job makes them feel anxious. Craig Wilson of the Prince's Trust said, Today's research shows that without increased support for young people in the UK, the legacy of the pandemic will be a substantial crisis of confidence in our future workforce. Young people have faced significant disruption to their employment and education at a time when our economy and jobs market is in flux. As we look forward into 2022 there is still a huge amount to do to restore young people's confidence and rebuild the skills they need for the jobs available now and the jobs of the future. Every day at the Prince's Trust we meet talented young people looking for opportunities to work and train. It is in all of our interests to support the younger generation into sustainable jobs to help rebuild our economy. This article is written by Jodie Harrison. The Herald Scotland, Wednesday 24th of November 2021 Hamza Yosef warns it will take a number of years for NHS to recover from COVID pandemic by David Ball, political correspondent. Scotland's Health Secretary has been accused of having underestimated the scale of the challenge he faces after admitting it would take years for the NHS to recover from the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hamza Youssef has published a five-year recovery plan for the NHS as the service fully remobilises following the worst impacts of the pandemic. But the Scottish Government has been judged to have shown gross neglect by planning for a second independence referendum by the end of 2023 although the SNP administration has stressed the timescale is dependent on the pandemic. Speaking on BBC Good Morning Scotland, the Health Secretary was asked when patients can expect normal service to resume in the NHS. Mr Yusuf stressed that things have been heading in the right direction in the last few weeks, but added that he had been honest that things are not back to normal. He said, In terms of elective care, what I would say is we are already trying to work through that backlog. Where there is spare theatre space and staff available, we are doing what we can, but many health boards have had to make decisions to prioritise urgent care. The Health Secretary was pressed over the timescale for a full recovery for the NHS. He said the recovery plan published in the summer was a five-year plan backed by a billion pound investment. I would love to say to people, look, the effects of the pandemic, which has been the biggest shock to the NHS in its history, is going to be over in a matter of weeks or even months. Mr Yosef added, We are still in the midst of the pandemic, so it's not possible for me to say that. It will take a number of years, undoubtedly, to recover from the effects of the pandemic, but we leave no stone unturned to do everything we can to improve the situation. Following the comments, the Scottish Lib Dem leader, Alex Cole-Hamilton, said... The Health Secretary should admit that he had previously underestimated the scale of the challenge and that the present NHS recovery plan is not up to scratch. Staff are at their wits' end coping not just with the pandemic, but with the consequences of 14 years of SNP failure. He added, What is even more astonishing is that despite admitting the recovery will take years, the SNP are still promising to focus on another independent referendum as soon as next year. That's starting to look like gross neglect. The Health Secretary and his Cabinet colleagues should focus on ensuring the NHS has the support and resources it needs to get through the years to come. Scottish Labour's Health Spokesperson, Jackie Bailey, added, No one underestimates the scale of the challenge before our NHS, but the SNP must be prepared to shoulder some of the blame for the situation we are in. Our NHS was underfunded and under-resourced before the pandemic, and the Health Secretary's so-called NHS recovery plan is nothing more than a sticking plaster with old, reheated promises. We can avoid years of further hardship in the NHS and the damage it would cause, but only if we have the political will to do so. We need the Health Secretary to stop looking for excuses and to start looking for solutions. This article was written by David Ball. The Herald of Scotland Wednesday 24th November 2021 News Scotland Health More than 500 assaults on ambulance staff by L Duffy, Subscriptions and Engagement Editor An ambulance was hit with a number of unknown objects while responding to a hoax cardiac arrest call in Edinburgh. Ambulance crews were deployed to an address in Ox Gangs on Saturday November 20th where they were unknowingly attending a false call. When their vehicle was attacked, the incident was brought to light as official figures revealed there had been more than 500 verbal or physical assaults on staff by members of the public in the last two years. Call handlers have been verbally assaulted and staff members have been spat at between January 2020 and October 2021, and they say it leaves a lasting effect on staff. The Scottish Ambulance Service say that as Christmas party season approaches, it is more important than ever to raise awareness of the issues. Pauline Howey, Chief Executive of the Scottish Ambulance Service, said, Assaults and antisocial behaviour are completely unacceptable and our staff should not have to fear for their safety when treating patients or to be verbally assaulted over the phone when handling calls. They work incredibly hard helping people in need and keeping them safe, and sadly, we've seen incidents occur in other parts of the NHS and against our police and fire colleagues too. We also provide support to staff to report incidents to Police Scotland so that they can take the matter further. This article was written by L. Duffy.
1: Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday, 24th of November 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Joseph. The Scottish Artist Creating Heartfelt, Soulful Anthems That Strike a Chord With Audiences By Erin McDermott, Features Writer Fresh off the back of his first major UK tour, including sold-out shows in both Glasgow and Edinburgh, Scottish soul pop artist Joseph is feeling anything but fresh himself. Yesterday was our last gig of the tour, says the 26-year-old from Glasgow's East End. He admits he's a bit of a cold and apologises for sounding like Pat Butcher. It was our bandmate's birthday so we went out after the show last night and I got the train around 5am this morning back to the gaff. The tour was amazing but I do feel like an empty Capri Sun, he laughs. Joseph, who now lives in London, has been propelled into the limelight over the past two years. In this short space of time, he has secured nominations for BBC Sound of 2020, Scottish Album of the Year, brackets, SAY, close brackets, award, and supported singer songwriter Arlo Parks on her recently sold out tour of venues throughout the UK. He acknowledges his own recent sellout show at his native Barrowland Ballroom in Trongate, Glasgow, as being a personal career highlight. Playing at the Barrowlands a couple of weeks ago was amazing. I was so shell-shocked after the gig, he says. It was my first time playing there and the venue just means so much to me. Being from Glasgow and playing in your hometown, there's honestly nothing like it. That was a definite highlight for me. I can't describe the feeling. I just remember the noise of the screaming being so loud. It's like the cleanest high you'll ever get in your life. I can see why people get addicted to it. As well as being an avid fan of the Barrowland Ballroom, Joseph expresses a loyal devotion to independent venues throughout the country. As a result, Independent Venue Week announced him as its new Scottish ambassador. Touring places now and going into some independent venues and some bigger ones, you'll really notice a massive difference. Some venues just feel a bit soulless, but you don't really get that when you're playing the likes of the Barrowlands or even King Tuts, he says. I just feel independent venues have something that's so special, they're little institutions and they can become so iconic that it makes people take notice a bit more. You just can't get rid of them. It's also important to me because my career started in King Tut's. In 2019, Joseph began releasing music clips online with the intention of creating a degree of curiosity and intrigue and to establish if there was any appetite for his music. Without having released any recordings, Joseph's managers booked King Tut's venue in Glasgow for his debut show and were shocked when the gig sold out. I feel like I blacked out at that first gig in King Tuts and woke up after it was done. The nerves were real, he laughs. That started it all. In the middle of 2019, Joseph started working with record label Owl, which meant he had to leave his full time job as a barman in a heavy metal bar, brackets the Solid Rock Cafe, close brackets in Glasgow's city centre. Despite confessing to being a bit of a late bloomer as far as music is concerned, his emotionally honest songs have struck a chord with his fans. His debut EP, Play Me Something Nice, and the 2020 EP, Does It Make You Feel Good, which he created during lockdown last year, are both inspired by heartbreak and tinged with a soulful, playful melancholy. He explains, it's a cliche, but being sad or being depressed fuels the fire of being creative. I feel like a lot of good art or music is born out of hard times. That's the same for a lot of artists, and it's the same for me. Whenever I'm feeling, shh, star, star, e." or hungover, I can usually knock a tune out. I write about heartbreak and love, which is a universal experience. I think it's by default that people can relate to it. Everyone's had their heart broken. Most people have texted their ex when they're hungover. Joseph is a rising talent whose music connects to audiences, particularly young listeners who appreciate the unapologetically honest lyrics, which blend soulfully with the lo-fi pop instrumentals. He credits his upbringing as a reason for his emotional honesty in his songs, And from quite a rough area. What you see is what you get, he admits. I think being brought up in Glasgow, it forces you to be really honest and confront a lot of things. And I think people can feel that when you're performing, which makes them connect with the music easier. Despite having no industry connections or professional training, Joseph managed to achieve a fan following almost instantly. And he seems to have accomplished this without compromising on his authentic characteristics. All you can really be is yourself and remember that there is nobody else like you, he reflects. If all you can be is yourself, then you're more likely to stand out. If you try to copy other people or do what you think people will be interested in, you end up sounding like everyone else anyway. Having grown up in Girthamluck, he also cites his mother's musical preferences as having a big impact on his soul-pop style of music. My mum had a quite an eclectic mix of soul, she loved Al Green and the Mamas and the Papas, but also artists like the Specials and the Spice Girls as well, he explains. My mum always had a good music playing in the house, so I was never short for inspiration when I was growing up. Having clocked up millions of streams and a larger overseas tour planned for most of next year, with new music also coming out soon, how is the emerging star handling this sudden change of lifestyle? It's great knowing that people are paying attention, but I can still go into the shop and buy a loaf and milk. When that stops happening, I'll maybe start freaking out www.josephjosephjoseph.com by Erin McDermott. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday, 24th of November 2021. Arts and Entertainments. The story of legendary Glasgow venue, The Arches, by Barry Didcock, senior features writer. Any city worth its salt knows its cultural offering is vital in many counts for its ability to draw tourists in their wallets, to define the spirit of the place, to shape stories about the people who live there and elsewhere, and to give a platform to those who will tell those stories, whether that's through folk songs or by spray-painting startling images onto walls, more about Banksy later. The overground is important, the concert halls, galleries, theatres and cinemas, but so is the underground. It's there you'll find the club impresarios, agit-prop theatre makers, DJs, garage punk outfits and yes, graffiti artists. It's also where you'll find their audience, young, questing, restless, energetic, and for nearly 25 years from its founding in 1991 until its closure in 2015, nowhere in Glasgow said underground quite like the Arches, a multi-purpose venue located in a series of vaulted rooms beneath the city's central station. It was the perfect place in the perfect epoch for a city exploding with talent and noise. David Bratchpiece was 21 when he replied to a job advertisement in the list for a cloakroom attendant. That was in 1998. He stayed 15 years moving from cloakroom to box office and finally becoming front of house manager. Now in collaboration with the Archie's former press and publicity manager, Kirsten Innes, he has co-authored Brickwork, a biography of the legendary venue. I kept thinking about the Hacienda in Manchester, he says. There have been books, films, everything about the Hacienda. The people of Manchester just loved it so much they wouldn't let it fade away. And I felt the same had to happen for the Archies. The Hacienda, a legendary player in the UK's Manchester and rave scenes in the late 1980s, was primarily a nightclub and music venue. The Archies was certainly famous for its club nights. 5,000 people queued around the block when Super Club Cream held a night there, but it was far more than just a DJ booth, a bar and a dance floor. It was such a cross-purpose place, multifunctional but inclusive to everyone. It's sort of an alchemy that no other venue has really matched. It's best known for the big club nights, which in themselves had variety. There was no elitism, but there was also theatre, festivals, exhibitions. It managed to pull off these things, often multiple events in the same day, You could be in the box office and there could be a theatre reviewer from Morningside in the queue alongside a guy from Black Hill getting his club tickets. Appropriately for a city which prides itself in its patter, Brickwork is essentially an oral history. Among those whose recollections are featured are DJs Ord Meikle, Stuart McMillan and Carol Cox, actors Colin McCready and Stephen McCall, playwright Kieran Hurdley, critics Joyce McMillan, Mark Fisher and The Herald's Keith Bruce, and theatre directors Cora Bissett and Andy Arnold, the man who started it all 30 years ago when he took on the venue in the wake of Glasgow's reign as European City of Culture in 1990. Back then it had housed a City of Culture exhibition which was to be called The Words and the Stones until someone pointed out the unfortunate acronym. It was retitled Glasgow's Glasgow and was still an almighty flop but Arnold persuaded the organisers to leave in the theatre seating and then approached British Rail for permission to run an event there during Mayfest 1991. Arnold's production won an award from the Herald and then received a much-needed financial lifeline in the form of a donation from Jimmy Boyle's Gateway Trust. Brackets, Boyle was not unfamiliar with the vaulted rooms which became the Archies, though that's another story, close brackets. The council mistakenly provided a licence for 12 months instead of 3 weeks, and the rest, as they say, is history. Since then, the list of performers who have come through the arches on their way to the top is too long to recount, but selected highlights are worth mentioning. French duo Daft Punk, initially signed to Glasgow's Soma label, went as punters before performing their first UK show there in 1997. Public Enemies Chuck D gave a book reading. Massive Attack chose the venue to launch their Protection album in 1994. DJs and dance acts such as Richie Houghton and the Chemical Brothers played, so did Damon Albarn, the White Stripes, the Jesus and Mary chain and virtually every Scottish band you can think of from the last 20 years. Lee Bowery gave his infamous live birth performance at Anything Went Club Night Love Boutique in 1994. Groundbreaking performance artist Taylor Mack appeared in 2013 and a young Robert Carlyle played in the conquest of the South Pole with the Rain Dog Company. Peer closely at one pitching in Brickwork, the Pan Pan Theatre Company performing in 2007, and you can see future Oscar nominee Ruth Naga, currently starring in Rebecca Hall's Netflix film The Passing. And then there was Banksy. As ever, the Archies was head of the game, including the then-unknown graffiti artist in a larger 2001 exhibition, whose headliner was Jamie Reed, designer of the Sex Pistols' iconic Nevermind the Bollocks album cover. Did Bratchpiece meet the evasive art superstar? It was a strange one, the Banksy, because to do the exhibition they just closed off the space for a night, and the next morning there it was. It was as if some talented ninjas had been setting it up. It was a team of them, and nobody could ever quite figure out who was who, which was quite deliberate on their part. I've still got a t-shirt which one of them gave me, so I could possibly have met Banksy and not been aware of it. And the Banksy murals, they were painted over, a fact Archie's music programmer Tamsin Austin found herself reflecting ruefully on at the South by Southwest Festival a few years later as she watched Brad Pitt cue for an exhibition of the Bristolian's work. Brickwork is published by Salamander Street, a new Scottish imprint specialising in art, music and drama. Its opening lines are, Were you there? to which tens of thousands of Scots can answer, hell yeah, at Love Boutique or Death Disco, or any one of the many other club nights which were held there. At Alien War, the legendary immersive recreation of scenes from the Alien movies. At Mogwai's first Scottish headline show. At a club night, dancing to Daft Punk or the Chemical Brothers. But as the book illustrates, you'd receive the same effusive response from past employees. Part proving ground, part nursery, the Archies helped launch the careers of many people now at the top of their professions in the creative industries. Jackie Wiley, for instance, who started as a fundraising officer and now heads the National Theatre of Scotland. or former project assistant, Barry Essen, who went on to found the claimed political arts organisation, Arica. And let's not forget Andy Arnold himself, artistic director of Glasgow's Tron Theatre since 2008. It was such a fast-moving place, says Brachpiece, There was a wonderful chaos to it, and I think that as a programmer or as a technician, if you can handle that and get on top of it, then you can handle anything. Archie's story ends in 2015 when the venue finally closed, though the beginning of the end came with the drug-related death of 17-year-old Regan McCall after a night out there in February 1, 2014. The following year, police dismay at mounting disorder and drug use resulted in a requirement to close at midnight which deprived the venue of its main funding source. In June 2015, the Archies went into administration. The Scottish arts community was mobilised in a supportive petition with 40,000 signatures raised, but amid dark mutterings about politics, land deals and cultural vandalism, the venue closed its doors for the final time in June 15. There's a picture of the shuttered entrance in the book. Last word then to actor Stephen McCall. I performed there, I partied there, I DJed there, I met the mother of my children there. I made lifelong friendships. The Archies is part of me and I'm a small part of its story. It was much more than one of the best clubs in the world. It was the beating heart of a massive artistic community. Brickwork, a biography of the Archies by David Bratchpiece and Kirsten Innes is out now. Brackets, Salamander Street, £12.99. Close brackets. By Barry Didcock.
2: The Herald, Thursday the 25th of November 2021. News. Edinburgh da Vinci robot hub set to train next generation of surgeons. This article is by Helen McArdle. Scotland is set to lead a revolution in surgery as a new robotic training hub launches in Edinburgh. Around 120 surgeons a year from Scotland, the north of England and western Europe will be able to hone their skills on the da Vinci robots at the centre based at the headquarters of the Royal College of Surgeons Edinburgh, RCSE in Nicholson Street. The minimally invasive technology is expected to transform complex cancer surgery by slashing recovery time for patients, reducing infection risk, and enabling the NHS to increase the number of operations which can be carried out. Although there are already 14 Da Vinci robots in place at hospitals across Scotland, following a £20 million investment by the Scottish Government, few surgeons in the UK are currently trained to use the devices. It brings huge prestige to Scotland, and to the College in particular, to be able to deliver education and training like this, said Professor Michael Griffin, President of RCSE. It is absolutely state-of-the-art and we're very proud. The College has worked with the robots manufacturer, Intuitive, to train up specialists in every major organ from the esophagus to the prostate so that they can teach surgical trainees as well as established surgeons on how to perform operations using the da Vinci. A major benefit for medics is that it cuts fatigue because instead of standing for hours, They are seated at a console viewing the procedure via highly magnified 3D images on a screen. The console then transfers extremely precisely the very fine hand movements of the surgeon onto the patient via the robotic arm. Surgeons do not even have to be in the operating theater with the patients, potentially paving the way for routine telesurgery in future especially in remote or island communities, which struggle to attract specialists. Mr Griffin said, the great advantage is that, yes, it helps to standardise complex surgery, but above all, what it does is take away a lot of the fatigue from the primary operator, performing long, very concentrated, minimally invasive procedures if surgeons are standing the whole time sometimes for hours on end that's when fatigue sets in by using the robot surgeons can sit down and use a console to do these complex maneuvers rather than doing everything themselves and holding their hands in complicated and often ergonomically difficult positions so what robotics provides is that release of the fatigue which makes procedures safer more standardized and overall patient outcomes will be so much better. Robotic surgery builds on laparoscopic or keyhole techniques, famously pioneered by Professor Sir Alfred Cushieri in Dundee in the 1990s and was initially targeted to prostate operations because it enabled surgeons to undertake extremely precise procedures using very small incisions. The increased number of da Vinci systems in Scotland means robotic-assisted surgery can now be offered to more patients and used for a wider range of cancer and benign procedures in hard-to-reach organs, including colorectal, gynecological, urological and head and neck cancer. Mr Campbell Roxburgh, a senior clinical lecturer, at Glasgow University and chair of the National Planning Robotic Assisted Surgery Clinical Reference Group, said Scotland was establishing itself at the forefront of these developments. He added, this facility will help to train a nation of Scottish surgeons seeking to specialise in robotic assisted surgery, delivering benefits to Scottish patients and enabling us to become self-sufficient in training and implementation of robotic surgery. We should aim to be seen in the rest of the UK and further afield as a center of excellence for training surgeons both here and beyond our shores. Training on the da Vinci surgical systems will be delivered in person by intuitive and will enable surgeons to gain a deep understanding of how to use the technology Including camera control, retraction and arm control, suturing and instrument insertion. This article is by Helen McArdle. The Herald, Thursday, the 25th of November 2021. News Nicola Sturgeon's approval ratings tumble in YouGov poll. This article is by Tom Gordon. Nicola Sturgeon's personal approval rating has slumped since she ended her daily COVID briefings, suggesting voters are increasingly unhappy with her domestic record. A new YouGov poll for The Times found the First Minister's rating has fallen almost 40 points since its peak last year when she was on TV almost daily, although she remains the most popular political leader in Scotland. Ms Sturgeon's approval rating hit plus 50 in August last year when 72% of voters said she was doing well as First Minister against 22% who said she was doing badly. But her rating this month is down to plus 12 with 53% saying she's doing well compared to 41% saying she's doing badly. Since the YouGov's last pre-election poll in May Her popularity has halved from plus 27. The decline coincides with the independence debate stalling and an increased focus at Holyrood on the SNP's record on health and education with a slew of recent problems in the NHS. However, Ms Sturgeon remains the only Scottish party leader with a positive rating and other party leaders have suffered declines as well. Tory. Douglas Ross's approval rating is minus 38, down 4 points. Labour's Anna Sarwar is minus 1, down 21 points. While Boris Johnson is minus 62, down 17 points. And Sir Keir Starmer minus 35, down 13 points. Scottish Green co-leaders Lorna Slater and Patrick Harvey, who have become ministers since the last YouGov poll in April, are on minus 38 and Alex Cole-Hamilton, who became Scottish Liberal Democrat leader after the poll, is on minus 16. On the constitutional question, YouGov found 46% of voters opposed to independence, 40% in favour and 9% unsure, suggesting Ms Sturgeon's plan for Indyref 2 by 2024 is failing to build support. In an interview ahead of this weekend's SNP conference, Ms Sturgeon yesterday dismissed rumours she plans to quit during the current parliamentary term, which runs to 2026. She told the BBC she had no intentions of going anywhere right now as First Minister. She said, It is almost as if my opponents have concluded they can't beat me or remove me from office themselves, so they're hoping that I'll remove myself from office. But they are going to be really disappointed because I'm going to be around a lot longer. Professor Sir John Curtis of Strathclyde University told The Times that Ms Sturgeon, 51, was at risk of looking like a politician stuck in second gear. He said, while she may still be Scotland's most popular politician, albeit not as popular as earlier in the pandemic, who leads by far and away Scotland's most popular party, albeit one dependent on the Greens for its Holyrood majority, there is little sense of progress towards its ultimate goal of independence. YouGov also found voters had downgraded independence to eighth in their list of priorities, with less than a third of SNP supporters seeing it as a key government objective. Electorally, the SNP's strength is undiminished, with the poll suggesting it would win 55 of Scotland's 59 seats in a general election tomorrow and only lose one of its 64 seats in a snap Holyrood election with Labour overtaking the Tories because of sleaze. The poll found little appetite for Indyref 2 in the short term but a majority of decided voters did want a new vote in the current parliamentary term. The poll by YouGov for The Times showed that removing don't-knows 53% of people want a referendum to be held during the current Scottish Parliament time. SNP MSP Rona Mackay said this poll shows a clear majority of people expressing a view want a referendum in the current Holyrood term as the UK's Tory government continues to be mired in Westminster sleaze and the harsh realities of Brexit are being realised It is no surprise that people of Scotland want to have the choice of taking a better path with independence. In the election in May, the people of Scotland elected a majority of independents supporting MSPs, delivering a cast-iron mandate for an independence referendum. Polling also recognises how the only party offering a positive vision for the future of Scotland is the SNP, the opposition can only provide doom and gloom, which is reflected in their near wipeout in the next Westminster election projected by this poll. The only way to protect the future of Scotland from the callous policies of Westminster governments is by becoming an independent country. This article is by Tom Gordon.
3: From the Herald Scotland dated Thursday 25th November 2021 from the Voices section. Why pick on Benny Hill? Don't we need to cancel the 70s? An article by Vicki Allen, senior features writer. For the first time in almost three decades, episodes of The Benny Hill Show were aired last week on the channel That's TV. Of course, since none of the sexism has gone away, and Benny is still chasing round after women slapping them on the bottom, there has been plenty of dismay. So when's Benny going to be on? Reruns of the once popular comedy sketch show are due to air on That's TV Christmas for seven weeks. What are people saying about it? Actress Debbie Arnold, who had appeared to star in the show at the time, said, I think all the camera angles were gynecological, to be honest with you. It was ridiculous. As much as I love Benny, He was a friend of my dad. He was a really nice man. I loved him very much. He was a very, very lovely person. But I just couldn't bear the shows. They were just awful and they were so sexist. It's old telly. Why so upset? Because the world hasn't moved on quite enough for us all to see it as anything other than the roots of current sexism. Why focus on Benny? Isn't it the whole 1970s we need to cancel? Yes, you're probably right. So many of those 1970s shows, viewed through contemporary eyes, now seem excruciating. It seems unfair to pick so much on Benny. And not just for their sexism, also for their racism. Many shows we remember laughing at as a kid. It Ain't Half Hot Mum, Forty Towers seem so troubling they barely rouse a chuckle. Even The Most Lovely Butterflies, written by Carla Lane, has Wendy Craig's character say she wants to be raped by a man. Just thinking, was it really much better in the 1980s? Fair point. You only just have a check through the John Hughes of, of teen movies to witness the full panoply of rape harassment, homophobia and racism. Watch the A-Team and you find women being treated like irrelevant psychics or damsels in distress. Then there's Miami Vice with its bikini-clad female cast. Probably we need to cancel them too. Or the 1990s. You mean like Chandler's transgender dad being made the butt of jokes? or fat Monica in Friends that cleavage episode of Seinfeld Frazier mansplaining and dismissing his wife as drunk in Cheers yes, wipe last year Netflix is you with its glamorised stalker sociopath or Gossip Girl with its toxic Chuck and Blair relationship I mean do we actually need to cancel the whole of television history and start again? And given there's so much recent telly around, would anyone notice? The Benny Hill fans would. This article is by Vicky Allen, Senior Features Writer.
1: Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday, 25th of November 2021. Arts and Entertainments. The Young H.G. Wells Changing the World by Claire Tomalin. Reviewed by Mark Smith By Mark Smith, feature writer The young H.G. Wells changing the world Claire Tomlin, Viking, £20 Review by Mark Smith Claire Tomalin's day job is telling the stories of Britain's great literary heroes and she does it brilliantly. Her ability to summon up her subjects in vivid colour is extraordinary. Years after reading it, I can still see Pepys' swagger in her book The Unequalled Self and remain slightly awkward about his encounters in the alleys of London. I can also still feel the intense anxiety of a great writer in Charles Dickens' A Life. The stories Tomlin tells are never just facts arranged chronologically, they're portraits of the dead who breathe again. The same applies to Tomlin's latest work. The young H.G. Wells, a short biography of an extraordinary writer emerging from unexpected circumstances. Herbert grew up in poverty, and from the moment Tomlin describes him going without lunch on Tuesdays and Thursdays and walking for miles to get to school, you feel great sympathy for him. You don't necessarily like him, though, which is one of the most interesting threads in an intriguing and colourful book. The reasons you may struggle to like Wells are complicated. As Tomlin points out, He was a surprising and provocative writer, and we may have taken that for granted recently. His most famous stories, The War of the Worlds, The Time Machine and The Invisible Man, are constantly being turned into, brackets often not very good, close brackets movies, and perhaps that familiarity makes us forget how remarkable he was. Not only did he come up with most of the big tropes of science fiction, his visions of possible futures were a great influence on the young and still are. It was George Orwell who said that if Wells had never existed, our minds would be perceptibly different. But Wells' great skills as a writer, novelist, and forecaster of the future is complicated by his sometimes troubling opinions and behaviour. For example, Anticipations, his book of essays in the future published in 1901, imagines a society many would support, republican, atheist, and free of nationalism. No god, no king, no nationality, he wrote. The problem is is that Wells' book also imagines a future human race that's divided into two a la time machine, and that the people of the abyss would have to die out. The people of the abyss he suggests might include black, Asian and other non white ethnicities. To be fair to Wells, and Tomlin is very fair to him throughout brackets, it's obvious she likes him a lot, close brackets. The young novelist later wrote approvingly of a multiracial society, but there are other areas of his life that may lead you to ask, do I like this man? His attitude to women, for example, a future in which women had devote vote was never one he particularly imagined or cared about, but he did imagine a future free of sexual guilt in which men and women were happy to share their wives, husbands or lovers. Some modern readers will probably sympathise with what he says here about relationships, particularly the more conservative conventions of marriage. Why should a sane, healthy woman be covered up in white gauze like the confectionery in a shop window, he asked. But as well as advocating free love, he practised it, having obtained his wife Jane's permission. However, Tomlin makes it clear that Jane was the woman who suffered most in Wells' account. She patiently agreed to whatever he asked of her, but as the years went by, found herself abandoned for even longer periods. Tomlin does not shy away from any of this. Wells, she says, was a bad husband and an unreliable lover, but her admiration for his more positive qualities gives her book great warmth and charm. A biographer does not necessarily have to like their subject, but perhaps it helps. Tomlin, above all, sees Wells as ambitious, hard-working, original, and in his views on poverty, society and class, a caring man who favoured the emerging socialist ideas. Wells in Tomlin's eyes, was a man who imagined a future of monsters, but also a future of equality. Perhaps the greatest achievement of her book, though, will be to point us back to Wells's novels and other works and remind us to re-read the greatest ones, or read for the first time the ones we haven't tried. Tom Bungi, for example, which is the story of the son of a housekeeper who rises up the social ladder, as Wells himself did. Tomlin's passion for this book is infectious, It has never become a classic at the level of Dickens or Hardy, she says, but if you read it, you'll be amazed to find how good it is. It is enthusiasm like this that gives the young HG Wells much of its colour, but also its purpose. Tomalin recognises there's quite a bit we may know about the Wellsian canon. Monsters emerging from spaceships, a man whose bandages hide a secret, and so forth. But mainly she's seeking to remind us of his brilliance as a writer, and a man pointing forwards. Some of the predictions he made, obviously, have not come to pass. We'll have a republic in 12 years, he said in 1911, but others have come true, for good and bad. In his story, The Land Ironclads, he predicted tanks. His book, The Rights of Man, was one of the sources for the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and William Beveridge, chief architect of the welfare state, spoke of the influence that Wells' ideas had on him. Wells, he said, was a volcano, in perpetual eruption of burning thoughts. But in the end, perhaps it's the Wellesian ideas that are yet to come true that are the most intriguing part of Tomlin's book. He dreamed of an end to marriage. It's still with us. He imagined a peaceful world, government. We're still waiting. And most intriguingly of all, he wrote of the day when human and alien will meet. Any or all of them may yet happen. Until then, we have the strange, great, and sometimes troubling novels of H.G. Wells. Mark Smith.
2: The Herald, Friday the 26th of November 2021. News. Covid B.1.1.529. What do we know about the worst ever variant so far? This article is by Gemma Ryder. A new strain of Covid-19 has raised alarm bells across the globe, with scientists considering it to be the worst variant of the pandemic so far. The government has taken immediate action and placed six countries on the UK's red list as a precaution. The B11529 variant has first been found in cases in Botswana, South Africa and Hong Kong. From 12 noon today, flights from the UK from South Africa, Namibia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Lesotho and Eswatini, will also be suspended and anyone arriving from these countries from 4 a.m. on Sunday will have to quarantine in a hotel. The B11529 strain, which has yet to be formally named, is spreading rapidly in South Africa, although Public Health England said it has not yet identified any cases in the UK. People who have recently visited South Africa and returned to the UK are being contacted for testing, to see if they contracted it overseas but how is this new variant different from previous versions and how dangerous is it when was it first discovered uk scientists first became aware of the new strain on november the 23rd samples were uploaded to a coronavirus variant tracking website from south africa hong kong and then botswana a total of 59 samples have been uploaded to the website so far Three samples are from Hong Kong, three are from Botswana, and the rest are from South Africa. New cases started emerging on Friday in Israel. Outlining the situation in South Africa, one senior scientist said, if we look at the results they had up to a week ago, less than 1% of people were testing positive in lots of areas. That increased very dramatically in some parts to 6% in the last few days. And so that makes me concerned quite rapidly on people that may be arriving in the UK now. Are there any cases in the UK? Currently there are no cases in the UK and more data is needed about the strain, but there are early indications that it is more transmissible. How is it different from the other variants? Despite only being tracked for the past three days, the virus has been identified as having 30 different mutations already. By comparison, that is twice as many as the Delta variant, which has been the most prominent variant in the UK over the past few months. The mutations contain features seen in all of the other variants, but also traits that have not been seen before. Will the vaccines protect people against it? It's too early to say. The mutations could potentially make the variant more transmissible and evade the protection given by prior infection, or vaccination. Professor Ravi Gupta, a professor of clinical microbiology at the University of Cambridge, has said B11529 has signatures of cumulative mutation, indicating that it emerged in a chronic infection. B11529 does certainly look of significant concern based on mutations present. Many have been shown to impact binding by neutralising antibodies and some are known to increase the availability of virus to enter cells or to make them fuse together to allow cell-to-cell spread. Have any of these countries been put on the red list? Yes. Flights from South Africa, Namibia, Lesotho, Botswana, Eswatini and Zimbabwe will be suspended from midday on Friday and all six countries will be added to the red list. What does this mean for travellers? The UK and Scottish Government and Northern Ireland executive said on Thursday that UK and Irish residents who arrived in England between midday Friday and 4am Sunday and who have been in the six countries within the last 10 days must quarantine at home for 10 days and take NHS PCR tests on day 2 and day 8 even if they already have a lateral flow test booked. Passengers, including UK and Irish residents, arriving from 4am Sunday will be required to book and pay for a government-approved hotel and quarantine for 10 days. They must also take tests on day 2 and day 8. Direct flights from the Six Nations to the UK are being temporarily banned until 4am on Sunday once the quarantine hotels have been set up. It is currently not known how transmissible the new variant is. From midday on Friday the 26th of November, non-UK and Irish who have visited the nations in the previous 10 days will be refused entry into England. How worried should we be about this variant? Scientists in the UK are eager to acquire live virus cultures so it can be examined, but this takes time. It can take seven to ten days at least to grow enough virus that can be shared with other scientists so they can study how it mutates and changes. Officials will now have to wait for data to come from South Africa. The earliest they are expecting evidence to come through is two to three weeks, but it could be as long as four to six weeks. Professor Neil Ferguson, a member of the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, SAGE, Said the B11529 variant has an unprecedented number of mutations in the spike protein gene, the protein which is the target of most vaccines. There is therefore a concern that this variant may have a greater potential to escape prior immunity than previous variants. However, we do not yet have reliable estimates of the extent to which B11529. Might be either more transmissible or more resistant to vaccines, so it is too early to be able to provide an evidence based assessment of the risk it poses. It is known as a variant under monitoring, meaning scientists believe it may pose a future risk, but its impact is unclear. This article is by Gemma Ryder. The Herald, Friday, the 26th of November 2021, News. PM's Scotland to Northern Ireland fantasy link would cost £335 billion and take 30 years to build. This article is by David Ball. Boris Johnson's plan for a fixed link between Scotland and Northern Ireland has been exposed as an impossibly expensive fantasy by an official study into the idea. Despite initial estimates, that a tunnel or bridge could cost £20 billion, experts said the final cost could be more than £300 billion and it could take 30 years to build. The HS2 rail project is estimated to cost £100 billion. Sir Peter Henry was commissioned by the UK Government to assess the feasibility of constructing a fixed transport link between Northern Ireland and Great Britain as part of his union connectivity review. But the official study has concluded that to construct either a tunnel or a bridge between the two countries would be expensive. In his foreword, Sir Peter said, the indicative cost estimate for the full route, including optimism bias, is 335 billion pounds for a bridge crossing and 209 billion pounds for a tunnel crossing. The bridge or tunnel and the associated very significant works on either side for a railway and possibly for roads would take a very long time. Planning, design, parliamentary and legal processes and construction would take nearly 30 years before the crossing could become operational, even given a smooth passage of funding and authority to proceed. Sir Peter said that future transport technology advances including autonomous vehicles could mean a link could be brought forward at a lower cost. But he added, for now though, the benefits could not possibly outweigh the costs to the public purse. It is therefore my recommendation to government that further work on the fixed link should not progress beyond this feasibility study. In September, The Prime Minister was forced to admit his plan for the link was not going to proceed as he downgraded the idea to a mere ambition and put other major projects including high-speed rail ahead of his vision for the 30-kilometre link. The PM had boasted about the idea since coming to power in 2019 and the feasibility study into the link was ordered in March. Initially, a proposed tunnel from Port Patrick in Dumfries and Galloway to Larne in County Antrim, dubbed the Boris Borough, was estimated to cost fifteen billion to twenty billion. Both the Scottish and Northern Ireland governments questioned whether the money would be far better spent on something else. This article is by David Ball. The Herald Monday the twenty ninth of november twenty twenty one news. A disgrace. Douglas Ross criticises Nicola Sturgeon for signalling restart of independence drive. This article is by David Ball. Douglas Ross has accused Nicola Sturgeon of focusing on Scottish independence rather than every other priority after the First Minister used her SNP conference speech to announce work is to restart on the party's drive to break up the UK. In her keynote speech to the SNP's national conference, the First Minister said that by next spring, COVID permitting, her party will resume in earnest its campaign for Scottish independence. She also said that in 2022, she will initiate the process necessary for an independence referendum to be held by the end of 2023. But Scottish Conservative leader, Douglas Ross, has said that the people of Scotland Will have sighed with dismay, but not disbelief, that the first minister's response to six cases of the worrying omricon Covid variant being identified is to reaffirm her commitment to holding another divisive independence referendum within two years. Mr. Ross said it's a disgrace that, on the same day as the First Minister is talking about the possibility of introducing new restrictions to combat the Omicron variant. Her focus is once again on breaking up the UK, but as usual with the SNP, independence trumps every other priority, even when opinion poll after opinion poll tells them that the public want them to get on with a day job. Scotland's NHS is at breaking point. Our drugs death crisis shames the nation. Our education system is in decline and the SNP's soft touch approach to justice is letting the public down. There are a whole host of problems that Nicola Sturge's government have created and have a duty to put right but their minds are elsewhere. I welcome the First Minister's announcement that the Scottish child payment will increase next year but I would urge her to make more use of the extensive devolved powers the Scottish government has on benefits instead of stirring up grievance by complaining that they don't have enough. Scottish Labour Deputy Leader Jackie Bailey criticised the SNP's obsession with separation. She added, It is deeply disappointing and irresponsible in the face of a deepening public health crisis that the focus of the First Minister is once more on sowing division between Scotland and the rest of the UK. Scottish Liberal Democrat leader Alex Cole-Hamilton said Nicola Sturgeon's speech had almost twice as many references to independence as it did to the health service. If only the energy that she and her party put into trying to leave the UK was poured into health, education and the climate emergency. Over the coming months, my party will campaign for better mental health services, support for patients with long covid and a plan to tackle burnout among NHS staff. That's the kind of positive plan that Scotland needs, not another campaign to leave the UK. But Alex Salmon's ALBA party has hit out at precious little action taken by the SNP on furthering the push for independence since May's Holyrood election. ALBA Westminster leader Neil Hanvey said yet again the SNP relaunches the campaign for independence which we are told is to begin in earnest. But actions speak louder than words, and despite a renewed mandate for a referendum at the May election, there has been precious little action in the seven months since. Independence must not be lost in a time warp yet again. He added, Giving notice of an intention to begin a process that should have begun long ago is one thing. Delivering a referendum in the face of Westminster intransigence is another. What will Nicola do when Boris says no? The independence movement needs a clear strategy for what happens when Boris Johnson says no to a referendum, as he most surely will. Scotland, as a sovereign nation, should not be seeking permission to hold a referendum, but asserting its right to do so. What is required now is a clear determination to face down Westminster. Through, if necessary, a convention of all of Scotland's elected representatives, so that it is not just the first minister against the prime minister, or Holyrood versus Westminster, but a whole nation asserting the sovereign will of the Scottish people. This article is by David Ball, The Herald, Monday, the twenty ninth of November, twenty twenty one, News, Covid Scotland. Scottish Government confirms more than 2,200 new COVID cases in 24 hours. This article is by Jodie Harrison. More than 2,200 new cases of COVID have been recorded in the past 24 hours. According to the latest figures from the Scottish Government, 2,244 new cases of COVID-19 have been registered since Sunday. Sunday. No new deaths have been reported of someone who tested positive for the virus over the past 28 days since Sunday but numbers recorded during the weekend tend to be low as registry offices are closed. The total death toll according to the measure used by the Scottish Government now stands at 9,562. Separate figures produced by National Records of Scotland, NRS, which record the number of deaths where COVID was mentioned on a death certificate, put the figure at 12,028 as of November twenty-first. NRS figures include deaths where suspected or probable COVID-19 appears on the death certificate. Of the 22,133 new tests for COVID-19 carried out, which reported results in the past 24 hours, 10.7% were positive. A total of 52 people are currently being treated in intensive care with a recently confirmed COVID-19, with 715 in hospital who have recently contracted the virus overall. A total of 4,345,855 people have received their first dose of a COVID-19 vaccination and 3,948,483 have received their second dose. More than 1,659,464 people have been given a third jab or booster. COVID statistics for the 29th of November at a glance. 2,244 new cases of covid Nineteen reported 22,133 new tests for COVID-19 that reported results 10.7% of these were positive zero new reported deaths of people who have tested positive noting that registrar offices are now generally closed at weekends 52 people were in intensive care yesterday with recently confirmed COVID-19 715 people are in hospital yesterday with recently confirmed COVID-19. 4,345,855 people have received their first dose of COVID-19 vaccination. 3,948,483 have received their second dose. And 1,659,464 have received a third dose or booster this article is by Jodie Harrison.
4: From the Glasgow Times, Monday the 29th of November 2021, from the sports section, Ex-Celtic East Alan Thompson reveals what was said between Alan McCoist and Neil Lennon in Touchline Ramy. By Aidan Smith. Alan Thompson has revealed what was said between Alan McCoist and Neil Lennon during their Touchline Ramy back in 2011. The shame game between Celtic and Rangers was full of controversy before the full-time whistle and had three three red cards, 13 cautions and 34 fans were arrested by police. Upon the full-time whistle, Jez's assistant McCoy's clashed with Lennon on the touchline and to this day fans have wondered what was said between the two. Thompson was alongside Lennon on the touchline that day and discussing the moment he told his son one of the main talking points of that season was Lightning McCoy's battle. The first game at Ibrox was a classic which ended 2-2. It was a great result for us because we finished the game with 10 men with Big Fraser Forster getting sent off. That game was also the birth of the Bruni which became a very iconic celebration as Scott Brown scored and stood with his hands in the air directly in front of El Diev, almost face to face. Scotty said afterwards that it was the best yellow card he would ever received in his whole career. The Scottish Cup 5th round replay was back to ours and if the first had been ill-tempered then this was known as the shame game with players almost getting locked up by police off the pitch and a few red cards thrown in for good measure. Rangers defenders Maggi Bouguera and Steve Whittaker both saw red with the youth getting up to his old tricks and he saw red also. The game from start to finish was absolute mayhem. It's not as if these games are normally good-tempered, but this was extra spiteful. McCoyst at the time pointed a finger at Lenny regarding what happened between them. He said Lenny acted over-aggressively, which wasn't the case in my opinion, and I broke them up. What really started to roll with Juif gave her physiotherapist a hard shoulder, and it escalated from there. Brown took a few kicks and Chris Commons got clustered in front of her dugout, which sent her emotions sky-high. All the way through the game Dioff was dishing out verbals in everyone in a hooped shirt and even directed a few to myself and Lenny on the sidelines. Don't forget it was Lenny and me opposing him exactly eight years previously when Celtic played against Liverpool in the UEFA Cup match at Parkhead and he inf- infamously spat at Celtic fans. You look at Dioff and he was pretty decent. The guy had been with some good clubs but in my opinion the only reason Rangers brought him up him in and was to wind the Celtic fans up. He was brought in by Rangers for the shock value. Dave was on one that night and I told him many times to do one away from an area as he was constantly trying to sneak up and closer to the area to noise us up. When the final whistle blew and we had won the game, all the staff went over to shake hands with the opposing team, as you do, and Lenny went to shake Christy's hand. I was stood so close that I clearly heard Ali tell Lenny and don't just be speaking to my F players, deleted players like that, only for Lenny to tell him. They're not your F expletive deleted players, they're Walter's. It's never been disclosed what was actually said over the decade now, but I'm telling you that was the spark that lit the fire and hell was hot. Lenny was right because Walter was the gaffer and Ali was only the number two at th- that time. Ali didn't take well to that. The Rangers boys were all trying to say it was their fault, but any team who receives three red cards in one match need to have a long, hard look at themselves. And that article is by Aidan Smith. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 29th of November 2021, from the sports section, Scots athlete Keen Elliott ready to step up training and hard work abroad to join the elite. By Graham McPherson, Covid's capacity for wrecking the best laid plans continues undiminished. Just one day after Kane Elliott had been speaking excitedly about his first winter training cap in South Africa, came news that a number of African countries were being placed back on the UK's travel red list due to a new strain of the virus. Talk about timing. The Falkirk Vicks athletes plans to see in the new year in Cape Town, then maybe in Peril. Dubai has already been looked at as an alternative. But in the bigger picture the outlook still looks rosy. After a lean couple of years as a result of virus restrictions and misplaced motivation, the former European under 18 1500 metre champion is finally back in his stride. After narrowly missing out on another European medal at under 20 level, the 19 year old was recently recognised as Scot- Scottish Athletic's under 20 athlete of the year while there was also a significant milestone at GB level with a place in the Olympic Futures Kick Academy. Scottish middle distance running is going through something of a purple patch, and seeing Josh Kerr and Laura Muir earn Olympic medals last summer has given Elliot further incentive to keep working hard at his own craft. It's definitely inspiring to see Scottish athletes doing well in the Olympics, especially middle distance runners like myself, he says. We should have a strong team at the Commonwealth Games as well, when you consider the likes of Josh Kerr, Jake Whiteman, Laura Muir and Gemma Rieke will probably all be there. You look up to these people and hope that one day you can get to the point where you're racing them and hopefully also beating them. I've got a long way to go on that front, but getting on the Olympic Futures Programme should definitely help. Getting the award from Scottish athletes was also nice and reinforces that what you're doing is working and that I need to keep plugging away and putting in the work. Should the South Africa trip go ahead, it will represent a significant milestone for the teenager who, until this point, had been funding his career out of his own pocket. GP backing, he hopes, will make future planning a little bit easier. We're meant to be going to South Africa for three and a half weeks from December the 31st to January the 25th if it goes ahead, he says. money over there will be nice if it happens, although we're looking at Dubai now just in case. I've been in camps before. But it's been off my own back when you're planning and funding it all yourself. I had my first ever training camp in October in Font Romeo, which was great. And now that I'm part of the GB setup, the plan will be to try to go on two or three a year. So there's a financial benefit from being in the programme. And I should also get easier access to things like physios, scans or testing, should I ever need them. It's a really important thing to be a a part of. The commitments required to succeed as an athlete tend to go unseen. Elliot's training sessions often follow or take place during his day job as a process control networker at the spraw- sprawling Ineos industrial complex. Handily though the Gainsmouth Sports Stadium is right next door. I work Monday to Friday half of it in the offense and half of it out in the site he says. My training is 7pm to 9pm every night and I just run whenever I can fit it in, usually after work. If I've got any double shift, I do my runs at lunchtime. The track is right across from my work, so I'm pretty lucky that way. Athletics is quite a big commitment, but my work have been really good at giving me time off whenever I needed it. The main benefit of going to Font Romeo, as well as altitude training, was not having to work, being able to train during the day, and also get proper rest. I feel really fresh during my sessions, and being able to wake up a bit later was a benefit too. It's just all about doing all I can to take things to the next level. If I want to be competing at elite events and trying for medals one day, I need to put the hard work in now. And that piece was by Green McPherson.
3: Sunrise and sunset times as of Monday, 29th November 2021. Sunrise is 8.19am. Sunsets, 3.50pm. Lighting up time, 3.50pm.
1: Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 29th of November 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Meet you at the Hippos, Mark Bonner's documentary about Scotland's new towns and public art by Susan Swarbrick, columnist and senior features writer. What's the story? Meet you at the Hippos. Pardon? It's a BBC Scotland documentary which sees Shetland and Guilt star Mark Bonner embark upon an odyssey around Scotland's post-war new towns to shine a spotlight on their legacy of public art. Why? The actor's father is Stan Bonner, the environmental artist responsible for creating the famed concrete hippo sculptures in Glenrothes at Nisco Bride's landmark concrete elephants. A young Mark Bonner spent part of his childhood living in both towns. Tell me more. Meet You at the Hippos examines the story behind the conception of Scotland's new towns, East Kilbride, Glenrothes, Cumbernauld, Livingston, and Irvine, and how they set out to entice the overspill population of Glasgow. The programme seeks to uncover the surprising ways in which public art, such as concrete sculptures, totem poles, decorated underpasses and standing stones, changed the new towns and how, in turn, the new towns changed public art. Anything else? Mark Bonnard learns how the seminal work of Newtown artist Brian Miller and Cumbernauld has inspired a new generation, while other former Newtown artists including David Harding, Malcolm Robertson, Mary Byrne and Dennis Barnes reflect on their respective projects. When Can I Watch? Meet You at the Hippos is on BBC Scotland, Tuesday, 10pm. By Susan Swarbrick. Herald Scotland, recorded on Monday 29th of November 2021. Arts and Entertainments New book by Ian Patterson imagines Scotland's future after yes vote by Maggie Ritchie Scotland has narrowly voted for independence. The virus is still with us in its endlessly multiplying variants. Army trucks trundle through the streets and Chinook helicopters rattle above while the jobless roast rats in the street. It's the near future as imagined in a new dystopian book by Glasgow-based author Ian Patterson the creator of the BBC network comedy Rab Nesbitt, as he says there is no shortage of love, death, passion, politics and coffee in this book. Burning Down the House, his fifth novel, is provocatively set in an independent Scotland in the immediate aftermath of a narrow second referendum yes vote. As the fledgling independent Scotland endures its birth pangs, the book's hero, stroke anti-hero, Ivan, tasks himself with grabbing this historic moment before it cools and hardens into disappointing orthodoxy. When words fail, action must follow, is Ivan's thinking. In the book we find Ivan's life at a crossroads, says Paterson, His obsessive behaviour has caused another relationship failure. He's dissatisfied with his work and with the usual forms of political protest, which these days tend to involve nice middle-class people carrying ironic placards to zero effect. He wants to leave his mark on the new Scotland and looks to the example of last-century Ireland for parallels and inspiration. He's a man on a mission to shape the Scottish future and his ultimate methods aren't pretty. The book also features the ghost of dead Irish freedom fighter Michael Collins who takes up residence in Ivan's flat in the best armchair and eating huge slices of cake. Ivan is obsessed with Collins who was provisional governor of the Irish Free State from 1922 and his ghost materialises after a bump in the head. The Irish Revolutionary will play a crucial part in Ivan's own version of a Scottish Revolution. I've never understood why nobody involved in the independence debate looks at our near neighbour Ireland's history, says Paterson, who wrote a play about the freedom fighter. I even tries to apply the lessons of Irish politics to Scotland that has just voted yes, and where the very narrowness of the vote is a recipe for schism, and where people are more divided than ever. That is already true post-Brexit and IndyRef. There are no shades of grey in this debate, and the people who didn't vote the way you did are a bunch of idiots. We have seismic divisions over remaining in the UK Union, with polls leaning consistently, if narrowly, towards independence. Brexit and the pandemic have sharpened tensions, and don't forget that perennial Scottish favourite, sectarianism. It's very much alive and well. Paterson's hero, a disillusioned writer who once had a popular success, is an old anarchist who decides words have extreme limitations and it is time for action. He goes back to the old anarchist stance that the best way to start a revolution is to start with a two-person cell as it limits the possibility of infiltration. Ivan has regular talks with his cousin, Trish, a Republican in Glasgow's Café Toit, over cups of coffee and when Trish falls for a young Irish Republican, Ivan meets his ideal running mate in revolution. You'll experience the rawness of an evolving nation through the eyes of writer Ivan and Trish. Ivan is spiritually for independence but has no faith in the political system. What he sees is what Patrick Pearce, one of the leaders of the Easter Rising Rebellion, saw in Ireland in 1916, that Scotland needs a convulsion, in this case a Glasgow-centric convulsion that may well lead to civil war, but out of the embers of which a new Scotland will emerge. The present is hot and malleable, Ivan believes, this historic moment needs grabbing before it cools and hardens into disappointing orthodoxy. When words fail, actions must follow. Paterson may be best known for creating and writing the BBC network comedy *Rab C Nesbitt*, for which he wrote all 67 episodes, as well as two stage shows. But he's also written and created other BBC shows, including *Bad Boys* and *Breeze Block*. He's published four novels before this one. In theatre, he has written several plays about, among other subjects, Irish freedom fighter Michael Collins, psychiatrist R. D. Lang, and the self-styled modern dandy Sebastian Horsley. While Patterson has set his latest novel in the inflammatory arena of the independence debate that pitted families and friends against each other during the run-up to the 2014 referendum, it's a satire filled with comic absurdity. It shares the dark Glasgow humour and biting cynicism that fueled Rabsey and Isbeth's impassioned rants about hypocrisy and social injustice. The main character of this new book struggles with modern life. A frustrated Ivan is exasperated by the media gatekeepers of the New Scotland and their endless nervousness over giving offence, said Patterson. There you have it, love, death, insurrection, all the big emotional guns, and yes, there's coffee, cake too. For Ivan, the journey of a thousand miles starts with the first cappuccino. Burning Down the House, the title inspired by the Talking Heads song, is available on Amazon by order, or in Amazon Kindle. By Maggie Ritchie.
5: Recorded from the Herald on the 30th of November 2021. From the Sports Section... Rangers AGM News Roundup, all the key points from today's meeting by Stuart Wilson. The Clyde Auditorium was the venue once again for the Rangers annual general meeting where the club's shareholders get the chance to grill the board about the events of the last year. Given the club finally won title number 56, it was always likely to be a fairly cordial affair and so it proved. Here are the key stories that broke from the event. More will be added throughout the day as our reporter files from the event. Robertson unplugged £7.5 million funding gap. Rangers Managing Director Stuart Robertson has already explained the club have already filled the £7.5 million funding gap for the season. The club revealed that they needed the cash to meet the costs of the season as the club's wealthy fan owners continued to dig deep. They have already covered a £23.5 million loss from last season's COVID-afflicted term. Goldson Contract Update Rangers Sporting Director Ross Wilson has provided an update on player contracts at today's AGM. It comes amid uncertainty over the future of central defender Conor Goldson. The English defender has been linked with a return south, but he has come out and said that he would like to stay at Ibrox beyond this season. Wilson insists the Scottish champions are relaxed on currently player contracts and he detailed that the squad has been split into three groups. Rangers do not need to sell players. Stuart Robertson insists Rangers do not need to sell any of their players as he revealed the Ibrox club are close to financial stability. The managing director was speaking at today's EGM and he backed up quotes made by sporting director Ross Wilson last week. Wilson told the media that new manager Giovanni van Brunkhurst will not be forced into selling stars as he outlined the club's player trading model going forward. Robertson today said, We don't need to sell a player despite what you read in the press. We are close to financial stability. Voting results. Club 1872 have revealed their poll results and resolutions ahead of today's Rangers AGM. The fan organisation will vote in favour of all eight resolutions at today's AGM, which is being held at the Clyde Auditorium. A statement read, All the shares held by Club 1872 Shares CIC and Club 1872 Project CIC will now be voted in accordance with contributors' wishes. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank all our contributors for their ongoing support. That article was by Stuart Wilson. Recorded from the Herald on the 30th of November 2021, from the sports section, the Kaigo-Furahashi duel that has given Aberdeen centre-half David Bates hope he is getting back to his best, by Matthew Lindsay. By his own admission, David Bates has struggled to produce the sort of form Aberdeen this season that he did when he played with Rangers, Hamburg and Circle Bruges as well as Scotland. The centre half arrived at Pitaudry back in August without a pre-season under his belt and has taken his time to get both his match fitness and sharpness up. But the way he dealt with the threat posed by the Celtic Front 3 in the Cinch Premiership game at Parkhead on Sunday afternoon has given him hope he is getting back to his best. Leela Bada, Kaigo Farahashi and Jota have terrorised defences at home and abroad since moving to Glasgow in the summer. Jota, the Portuguese winger, who is on loan from Benefica, put Ange Postecoglou's side in front in the first half at the weekend with a shot that struck Bates's chest and flew past Joe Lewis. However, Bates and his teammates kept their hosts fitted forward line at bay thereafter and only lost 2-1 because a Johnny Hayes clearance took a wicked deflection off Callum McGregor and ended up in his own net in the second half. The 25-year-old is keen to be involved in the home league game against Livingston tomorrow evening and optimistic that Aberdeen supporters are starting to see the best of him. Furahashi is sharp and a good player, he said. He is clearly one of Celtic's best players this season. His movement is very good and it's hard to deal with at times, his sharp movement. But I thought we handled him pretty well and kept him quite quiet. It is just frustrating that we did not get at least a point. Celtic have a good squad with Joto on the other side as well. They can both produce a bit of magic at times, but we kept them fairly quiet. It's just a bit disappointing not to get something from here. Bates added, I feel like I'm coming along. It was a while since I'd played when I first signed, as I didn't have a pre-season or any pre-season games. It was obviously straight into it, and trying to get games, and trying to get ready. It was quite hard at first trying to adjust, but I feel like I'm coming onto a game now. Aberdeen have lost their last three Premiership games and are just five points above bottom-placed Ross County in the table. But Bates is unconcerned about their league position. He is confident Stephen Glass's side can move up the table if they reproduce their Sunday display and get some injured players back. We showed that we can play against Celtic and their positives to take, he said. We need to carry that on now, especially on Wednesday. At Ibrox, Aberdeen drew 2-2 with Rangers in October and at Parkhead, we have shown we have the ability it's just a case of trying to do it over the course of the whole game. There have been so many injuries and I've dropped into three at the back at times this season. Hopefully some of the boys are getting fit now and can come back. Bates continued, we just have to focus on ourselves as we have Livingston on Wednesday. If we take three points, we kick on and kick on our season again. We have had good results against Rangers, Hearts and Hibs, but have dipped off a little bit. We are frustrated at ourselves and know we can do better and should be up at the table. But we need to start showing that on the pitch. That article was by Matthew Lindsay. This article is from The National,
6: date 29th November 2021, from the Politics section. New support for Scottish benefits applications rolling out by Jane Cassidy. People applying for devolved Scottish benefits can now access direct support from an advisor through a new service now available across the country. Social Security Scotland's local delivery initiative provides person-to-person support from trained staff in every local authority area. Advisors can answer any queries people may have about Social Security Scotland benefits and help with form-filling. People can book in-person meetings with an advisor at home or in their local community at a time and location that suits them best. These can be face-to-face, by video call or by phone. Face-to-face appointments will take place with COVID-19 protection measures in place. It follows a successful pilot in Dundee City, Perth and Kinross and the Western Isles earlier this year and coincides with the national rollout of child disability payment. Social Security Minister Ben McPherson said, I am proud that we are offering this brand new service which is not available elsewhere in the UK. Social Security Scotland's local delivery service is there to provide extra support and choice right across the country. We want to try to minimise any feelings of anxiety or stress when people need to access benefits. That is why we are offering face-to-face meetings or video or phone calls, whatever will best meet the needs of each particular person. I hope that Face-to-face appointments will be especially helpful for people claiming disability assistance. Our specially trained advisors are all available to help with all of our 11 different benefits. A mum of a girl who has used the service said it helped her overcome stress about accessing benefits to which she was entitled. The 30-year-old mother who was given assistance during the pilot in Perth and Kinross accessed child disability payment for her daughter who suffers from a chronic medical condition. The woman, who asked not to be named, said, I wasn't sure whether my daughter was eligible and I asked for help from the local delivery team. The woman who helped me was amazing. She explained clearly all the information I needed to get from my daughter's GP and school." I prefer speaking over the phone to a real person and was allowed to do that in two stages. It has made a difference to me. The introduction of the Scottish Local Delivery follows the rollout of the Child Disability Payment Pilot, which will provide financial support to children and young people with disabilities. For more information, contact Social Security Scotland through web chat at mygov.scot forward slash contact dash social dash security dash Scotland or call the free phone helpline on 0800 182 2222. That article was by Jane Cassidy.
0: And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre currently recorded
5: from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.